Hello fellow Kentuckians and other friends and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie and joining me this week is Emily McKiernan. Emily, how are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing okay. You know, you've been on the show several times in the past, but it's been a while. Um, so anybody who doesn't know you, I mean, what? I didn't even write an introduction to you uh, for you. So, I mean, I don't know. What is what is there to know about you? You're a teacher? You're... Uh, I'm a teacher in JCPS. I'm getting ready to go into my 16th year. Wow. So, um, been around for a minute. I'm a member of the JCTA Board of Directors. I'm a registered lobbyist with the JCTA and a mom and I teach a um, transition readiness class. I used to teach, I'm a certified English teacher by trade, but I teach a social emotional learning class called uh, Freshman Seminar. It's basically like how to be an adult. Yeah. Would you like to learn how to balance your checkbook? Like all those stuff that like random people post on Facebook and it's like, you know what they ought to teach in school? In school yeah. Just FYI, they do, and it's in my class. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, I would also like to take a class on how to be an adult. I have yet to figure it out, I don't think so. There you go. Um, yeah, that, that's Emily. Uh, you, you know, uh, when it comes to state government stuff, Emily is the person that uh, I usually uh, go to to know things like what's going on with this. And Emily is like, here's what you need to know about this thing when I don't understand what the bill says or, um, you know, what the implications of stuff are. She's way, way more well researched than me most of the times. And, you know, I, I, I won't I'm not ashamed to say it like some of the things that I have said regarding explaining how these bills work come from Emily. Uh, yep. That is that is how it goes. So Emily, that's Emily McKiernan. She's here to talk to us this week, um, which this week's show is mostly about uh, elections. Uh, so the governor's race had some interesting, weird situations going on with some campaign finance stuff, and we're going to be talking about that. And then also we are going to be talking a little bit about Louisville's budget. Um, I did throw Emily a curveball and talk to her about city city government, which uh, I think is your least favorite uh, tier of government, right? I mean, you got like state. I, I honestly get most of it confused because they don't touch JCPS's budget, so I never have to know anything about it. Yeah, you got like state, you got like, uh, yeah, the school board politics, and then, you know, probably federal, and then maybe city after that. We'll see. Yeah, everybody pays attention to federal on some level, I'm sure. Um, oh, yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead and d- dig into this campaign finance thing. Uh, this is a wild story. Would you agree it's a wild story? A couple of I mean, yeah, it's and a lot of it just seems kind of like gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, both of these kind of well, I don't know. One of them seems a little bit more serious than the other, and we'll kind of get into yeah. it. So, both the Bashir and Cameron gubernatorial campaigns have found themselves in the midst of yeah, some campaign finance drama, uh, and both both campaigns have seen themselves return contributions. Uh, last week that was in the news for both campaigns so daniel cameron returned money given to him by edgewater recovery center so people who work for edgewater recovery center that and that is actually a firm that his office was investigating uh when he received those contributions so that's one thing and then the Bashir campaign and Bashir and also the kentucky democratic party returned a big chunk of about two hundred and two thousand dollars which can be stemmed or it can be traced back to randall weddell who is the mayor of london and that money was in excess of the maximum contribution so we'll get into what the heck went on there what the details of it i guess we'll do that one first so the bashir campaign piece uh happened uh it got was in the news first it's actually in the news 
as Jasmine and I were recording is when the Kentucky Lantern dropped their story on Tuesday evening. So veteran reporter Tom Loftus, who worked for a very long time for the Courier-Journal, wrote in his reporting that the Bashir campaign and the KDP returned $12,000, that was the Bashir campaign, and $190,000, that was the KDP, respectively, to Mr. Weddle because his campaign contributions were in excess of the $2,100 and $15,000 that individuals can donate to either campaigns or parties, respectively. So, Emily, your first question is, like, what the heck how does that even happen? Aren't there like checks in place to like make sure that this doesn't happen? So this is this is how it actually worked. Randall Weddle's credit card was used to provide the maximum contributions by several members of his family. <laughs> so you know, uh, I, you know, if you give money uh, on like Act Blue or or what, you know, if you're a Republican listening, Win Red, I think is theirs. That that's what that one's called. Uh, you know, you got to type in your name, you got to type in your employer, your address, and whatever, and the amount that you're going to give, and then you know, you're given the opportunity to like give money through a credit card or whatever. So Mr. Weddle is like filling this out for his friends and family at the maximum contribution, and then just slotting in. In his credit card, which is totally illegal. Uh, that is not allowed. Uh, the campaign was able to track all this back because it all came from the same credit card, and it was pretty quickly surmised that the money was coming from Randall Weddle. So the refunds themselves are going to about 20 different contributions. So many of them gave both to the KDP and to the Bashir campaign. So it's not 20 different people, but it's 20 different contributions that are being refunded. So are you following so far? Yeah, I feel like this one's a lot easier to explain away, too, because I feel like Mr. And, you know, I don't know this man, but me personally, if I was like a great way to rack up some points on my credit card, because, you know, (laughs) when it comes to like donations, he was probably like, what if we all just use my credit card? I got all the points for it. And then Andy gets all this money. I mean, like, I feel like this one's just a somebody didn't know what they were doing, which I mean, I get And especially like when you're in a government position, you should probably be, you know, marginally aware. But he he thought he was putting other people's names in. So I feel like this one's easier to explain away. Yeah, that's that's, I think, the most uh, generous version of the story that you could possibly tell. And, you know, that's that's totally fair. I I tend to have a little bit more suspicion around Mr. Weddle. I don't know why he's giving and his family members are giving. Well, there's a lot of suspicion around this. I don't think that because you're trying to buy influence with somebody that necessarily means you're successful at buying influence with somebody. Like, I think it's very clear that Randall Weddle wants something from the state government, wants something from Andy Bashir or, or whatever. And is like, Hey, look at all the money that my family gave him. But like, I, you know, in my interactions with Andy Bashir and the people around that campaign, that's not going to work that, that great. Uh, I mean, I maxed out last campaign and I'm not sitting in some appointed seat. Maybe, maybe if you got like eight or nine other of your friends and family now I, again i don't think that's pos- i don't think that's likely uh, i don't think that that's how the bashirs operate um i do think that that's how a lot of people think that state government operates and so there are a lot of people that try this uh tactic and you know i just don't think i just don't think that you can jump from this person is trying to buy influence to this person has purchased influence which is i think a- it's also important to note that like andy didn't ask him to exactly as, as far as we can tell andy didn't ask him to and so i'm one of the people that has a lot of legal parameters around who I can donate to and how I can donate things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for example, like I can only donate to the legislators that actively represent me. I can't, that's considered free speech, but like, um, you know, if random John Smith in the whatever seat wants me to donate to their campaign, I'm not legally allowed to. However, the onus is on me, the Mm -hmm. contributor to help myself and make sure that I'm not doing something 
that I'm not supposed to do. And do legislators ask me for donations or other, t- there's other in-kind things like knocking doors and stuff like that. I do have ones that ask me for things and it's my job to say no, because I'm the one committing the, the crime yeah. if I don't. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There And, and you know, I don't think there's any of those type of uh, parameters. Well, no, the thing is, we all have parameters like that on us. There's maximum contribution limits. And it, the onus is on us as people who have uh, those maximum contribution limits to to check. And like the campaign can get in trouble. They can get in trouble. But we will get into why it's unlikely that they will uh, in just a second. But the first thing I wanted to say about this, or the next thing I want to say about this, is that the Kentucky Land has been writing several stories about Randall Weddle. And he has been in the news since this report became public that him and so many members of his family donated so generously to the Bashir campaign. So Weddle is a Republican. And London is one of the most longstanding Republican bastions in Kentucky. Emily, are you aware that there was once a like assassin of a Kentucky governor once. Uh, Is it the one that only got to be in office for like literal days? Yeah, and then he got shot. Uh, yeah. And and uh, the Republicans who had their governor shot, I'm pretty sure, I think that that's right. I think it was the Republican guy who got shot. They like decamped from Frankfurt to London. That's like where they went in the turn of the 20th century because that's where the Republicans were all the way back then. So like, that's just to, just to say that like London is a very Republican place and has been for a very long time, which is not true of many of the Republican places in Kentucky. It's not like, you know, Pikeville, which is extremely Republican now, but wasn't 10 years ago. Um, anyways, a Weddell and his family are all Republicans, and they have been giving significantly to Andy Bashir, which a lot of people are like, what the heck is going on here? One of the things that the Kentucky Lantern and other reporters across the state have identified is that Weddell owns a lo- what's called reverse logistics company. I don't really know what that means, but I think it's like they sell products that are returned to stores like on the open market, like eBay or whatever. And I guess that is kind of like a gray area of the law. I don't, I mean, I don't know all of the details about how exactly this works, but there are some people who are like, well, maybe he's trying to curry favor. And some people who have jumped all the way into saying like, he's doing this in order to get generous rulings from the Bashir administration. This has the scent of corruption around it, but it is not unusual for certain sectors and certain people in uh, certain jobs to give their money to specific uh, candidates and specific candidates of specific parties. So, you know, trial lawyers give most of their money to Democrats. Uh, You know, people in business, like business executives, typically give their money or have historically given most of their money to Republicans. Uh, You know, union members give their money to Democrats. And I don't know, uh, there are like lots of industries in in the world, in the country, in Kentucky that you know, don't donate more generously to uh, to candidates and specific parties. Um, I don't think that that's unusual. And and while there is like maybe a bit of potential impropriety, that I don't think it's necessarily uh, guaranteed that that's the case. Uh, does that do you agree with that? Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of this is one of those things where it's like don't assign to malice, which you can explain away with incompetence. I feel like this is just, <laughs> yeah. it's just a fumble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, one thing also to kind of give it the sense of like it is likely a fumble as opposed to, uh, you know, something really incredulous is um, the lead in Tom Loftus's writing said like the Bashir campaign refunded. That's like literally the first line of the sentence. So it's pretty clear that Andy Bashir gave this money back and then it became public knowledge. It wasn't something that the reporters were digging around for and then identified what was going on. The, re- the, the Democrats were like, hey, this is bad. 
we want to give this money back. We did it. And here's what here's what happened. Um, so that that's kind of, you know, that that kind of lends credence to the fact that like nothing really bad is going on. Now, despite that, the attorney general's office, where I may need to remind you that Daniel Cameron is in charge. I may not need to remind <laughs> you of that, Emily. Uh, but they delivered a letter to the FBI asking them to investigate these contributions. Uh, the Republican Party of Kentucky also released a statement. So uh, the Republicans are definitely trying to make this into a big deal. Um, okay, Emily, I know that you you have already said it doesn't seem like a big deal to you. Uh, it doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Uh, take off your hat uh, where you like Andy Bashir and put on your, um, I don't know, what do you call it? Like your... your uh, uh, like both both sides hat or like your uh your, your impartial hat uh and tell me what do you think that this is going to stick do you think that this story has any chance of sticking i don't think so because if the lead of it is the story or it's been refunded like the what's the what's the next outcome so you know the i think the person who's got the most to be worried about is the mayor i yeah, mean what is the one that would right. have the most to be worried about because you know it, He's the one that made all the contributions. It all tracked back to his credit card, all that. So, I mean, I don't think it's one of those things that's going to stick on Andy. It might stick on Randall when he goes to run for re-election as a Republican, where his own party is apparently waging war on him. Yeah. Now, the the, Repu- the mayor's office is nonpartisan everywhere in the state except for Louisville. So I don't think he'll have an R by his name when he runs, but he will have that hanging over him and everyone in London. He'll have, I donated almost enough money to ride on a sub to see the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I could have, I could have gone to, I could have gone down to the ocean at the ocean floor. Uh, That's right. Okay. uh, Let's, let's change gears. So that was the Andy Bashir story. Obviously it was, very dramatic, crazy situation. Um, the Cameron story, potentially even more crazy. So um, this re- was actually not even reported locally. This was reported by a national outlet, The Daily Beast. And uh, they had a story that starts with an anecdote about how Daniel Cameron asked a judge to recuse himself from a case where one of the parties donated $250 to that judge's campaign. Then quickly transitions, the story quickly transitions to the story of how Cameron accepted almost $7,000, so $6,900, from people who work at the Edgewater Recovery Center while the center was under investigation from the Office of Medicaid Fraud and Abuse, which is housed inside of the AG's office. And then he did not recuse himself until later. So, you know, I think a much more explosive story, potentially. So Cameron did eventually recuse himself, but the article makes really clear that the recusal actually happened on May the 19th, and his office received the open records request that led to that story that was written on May the 17th. So the Daily Beast reporter is like sending, I would like to see the emails, or I'd like to see the information related to this company, um, what's going on here. And then immediately after getting the ORR, Daniel Cameron is like, oh my gosh, I'm recused. I'm recused. I don't want to have anything else to do with this story. So one thing to know is that Edgewater's investigation was opened last year. So these donations all arrived in May, which is significantly like a year into the the investigation or maybe even more than a year. And the article speculates... The article speculates, I'm not necessarily speculating this, that the end of the investigation is near, penalties may be about to arrive, and then a bunch of money arrives in Daniel Cameron's, you know, campaign for governor coffers. That smells bad, right? That smells bad, but I also have a question (laughs) about him being 
him recusing himself. To whom does the case fall then? Somebody he hired himself? Yeah, that seems right. Uh, okay. I don't know if it goes. To, it doesn't go to like the auditor's office or anything. It well, because like when a judge recuses themselves, or it goes like to what a different happens, judge, yeah, it goes to a different judge, or there's that like change of venue bill that passed this past session. Mm-hmm. So, we, so when we change the venue, we get a completely new judge who has completely different, uh, you know, contributions and everything like that. But the, but the AG's office, um, the AG hires his his staff mm-hmm. so he recused himself and let somebody he handpicked and put in a position well I, I think yeah. maybe not necessarily handpicked so most of the people who work in the ag are merit employees uh okay. so they i mean are employed there across whoever is in charge uh whether the person leading the charge is a merit employee or not is not something i'm privy to but i think it's likely that there's enough merit employees there that it's not necessarily somebody handpicked but i you know and i don't really know the specific ways that recusals work um so it's potentially yeah it definitely is uh, the chance that it's somebody that daniel cameron hired i don't exactly know who gets to pick who's doing the investigation or, or what, recu- what recusal of the actual ag means um, you know, what is it? Are you like not sitting in those meetings? It's like, oh, we're going to talk about that's, this now. You need to leave the room. Like, I don't exactly know how recusal means. Who's tracking it? Who's checking to make sure it happens? Um, but yeah, that's that's definitely like something where it's like, trust me, I'm recused from this. Uh, that's something right. that's uh, that's interesting for sure. Uh, one wrinkle in this and something that popped up about it is that one of the donors who like gave and in the notes I put gave in quote marks uh, to the Cameron campaign who works at Edgewater was the Rowan County Democratic Party chair. Um, and I do also know that like once she um, and, and she has other other roles in the party as well, um, when, when it came, became clear that like her name was on this donation, she was like, I want that refunded immediately, uh, which to me sounds like she didn't know it was going out in the first place. Um, so it might have been a little bit of that Randall Weddle typing in people's names, giving money uh, right. via uh, like some sort of, you know, gift card you bought at Kroger or whatever. So I don't I don't know. I, I That's literally 100 percent speculation. But that that to me, the fact that the Round County Democratic Party chair, who I know is a good Democrat, um, even if I don't necessarily agree with her on everything, um, I, I would be shocked if she's giving money to Daniel Cameron and, and knowingly giving money to Daniel Cameron. So uh, not to say that it didn't happen. She did get her money refunded. Everyone ended up getting their money refunded. Um, but yes, that all happened before all this news came out. So that was that was really something. Okay, the most generous reading of this story, which is I, I tend to try to do that with Republicans to kind of like set the stage, is that that Daniel Cameron just didn't know he didn't realize that Edgewater was giving him money like while he's doing this investigation or whatever. It comes in, you know, goes into the pile with all the other money. Um, but and, and, you know, he's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that they tried to buy this, you know, investigation away from me. We're giving this money back. But further reporting by The Daily Beast kind of undercuts this. Uh, because it was revealed that Daniel Cameron was actually in discussions directly with Edgewater officials about hosting a campaign fundraiser uh, for him. So he was like asking directly from this company that he was investigating to please raise money for my campaign. Um, that, of all the things, to me, looks the worst, right? You were like, hey, <laughs> I know you're under an investigation. I mean, maybe that's another thing. Maybe he was just totally ignorant of this investigation, which would be just as bad to be. That's what clear. I'm saying, like, because earlier I said you don't assign to malice, but you can assign to incompetence. 
I mean, the other explanation for uh, you're either nefarious or you're incompetent. And e- neither one of them I want to be the attorney general or the governor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to me, I think like the the governor or uh, the, the mayor, I think specifically the governor, I think is like uh, this happened to us. We're giving all the money back immediately. Um, and, you know, maybe you can read into that that there was – um, you know, influence bot or whatever. But like, this is much more n- nefarious, I think, that he's asking specifically for this company he's investigating to give him money. It um, gives the air of, I didn't think I was going to get caught. Yep. I think that that's, I think that that's exactly right. Um, and not just that, like, you know, both of these are, are not good on their face, right? I think they're both not good on their face. But I think like the Bashir one gets to be a little better, not better, like less bad, because the story starts with like we discovered this and are giving all the money back. The Cameron one starts with the ORR from the reporter identifying this incredibly corrupt looking situation. And then, and only then does Daniel Cameron take action. He doesn't do anything proactively. He's not like figuring this out and then saying, Oh gosh, you know, we're investigating this firm. We're giving their money back. It happened. They did give us money. We have to be upfront about that. Like the governor was, he's like, keeping it until he's about to get into trouble and then revealing it. So yes. that, that to me Very is much. You caught me. You yeah. can have it back. Yeah. Absolutely. As opposed to we caught this issue and we already gave stuff back. I mean, I know the Bashir one was more money, almost a quarter million dollars yeah. as opposed to just shy of, just shy of 7,000. But at the same, it just, the amount matters less than the way it was discovered. Mm-hmm. I think that that's exactly right. So, I mean, the upshot of all of this to, is to say that both of these campaigns had a campaign finance situation. The Bashir one was first. The RPK jumped in, wrote a letter to the FBI, and to be totally on, like to be totally fair, the KDP, the Kentucky Democratic Party, has asked the FBI to investigate this as well. Um, so it is definitely like a tit for tat situation. But the RPK definitely thought they had something on their hands here. Like we are going to go after the governor for this specific thing. Uh, and then and then it was un- uncovered that basically a very similar and maybe even worse thing happened. So I think um, definitely these things cancel each other out at best for Andy Bashir and at worst, the Cameron one sticks a little better than the Bashir one. Now, maybe that's my uh, Bashir colored glasses coming through, but I, I think that that's certainly the way it looks on the facts of the matter. Do you agree or disagree? I mean, I agree. I also just have like a random question. Do these people not know how that cash exists? Like you can't trace stuff when it's cash. Like why, why, why is it all so traceable? And I'm not saying that, you know, campaign donations shouldn't be traceable, but you think if you were going to pull some wool over some people's eyes, you would, you would try harder. I mean, the Weddle one for sure. Like yes. you could have got, I mean, that just is literally just incompetence and goes to show that like nothing truly nefarious could have been going on here because it was just so stupid to put all the donations on the same credit card. But the, uh, yeah, the Edgewater one, there are probably more, you know, sneakier ways to be like that. But, uh, you know, you have to write your name down, I guess. Uh, I guess they could have directly bribed him. So I don't know. know. Or maybe we will know and it'll be more dramatic. It could be. It could be. Okay, that is all of the stories about these campaign finance dramas that I would like to talk about here. Anything else you want to say about that? Uh, no, I think I'm pretty good. I know uh, I know Daniel Cameron's, uh, pre- the previous person that ran as a Republican for governor, was super into open records requests. So you'd think he'd know how they'd work, considering 
that was one of Matt Bevan's favorite things to do. So yeah, 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 absolutely. There were the yeah the amount of open records requests and re- responses across all state levels of government um, could be could be done better for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about this thing uh, that you don't want to talk about, the Louisville budget, which passed unanimously. So we did talk last week about Lexington and their budget passing. So, you know, it would have been not fair of us to not mention that Louisville also passed our budget this week. So just like Lexington, the Louisville Metro Council made a few changes to the mayor's budget, some of which were dramatic and some of them were less dramatic. And the vote to approve the budget in total was unanimous. So everybody got on board and voted for this ultimately. The largest portion of the Louisville budget, as it is everywhere, is LMPD. Um, the LMPD's budget was increased by $4 million this year. Uh, and, and as a headline for people who are like not super great fans of the police and their behavior all the time, that seems like, yeah, sure, great. I can't believe we're doing this again. But one thing to say about it is that some of that money, and a lot of that money actually goes towards funding 33 new positions that were recommended in the DOJ report about LMPD. Um, to do things like warrant review, uh, training, and civilian investigators. Um, You know, these are things that the DOJ has recommended. There are some people out there who think like, oh, no, that's never going to work. The police are innately corrupt, and there's no way way to save this situation. Um, But, you know, as a a city government that's trying to do better, um, I think, you know, you have to put money towards things and putting money towards things that the federal government has told you you should do. That's money well spent. In my opinion, uh, there are a couple of other pieces to the LMPD budget that are new, include including license plate leader, readers and cameras, which I, Lexington also invested in, and also recruitment um, to, to increase the, the bodies on the force, which has been in a, uh, you know and a focus for for quite a while now. Um, so, anything to say about the LMPD budget and what we were spending more money on this time? I mean, anytime that there's some type of an audit process by an outside body, we're gonna like. If they identify fixes, it is going to cost money. And like, I know that from being in a public school where we've been through the audit process and, oh, why are you putting money into these failing schools? Well, we're not failing. We have identified things we need to fix. We have identified things we need to fix. I mean, it's going to be a hefty piece of the budget no matter what we do. I do appreciate that there's warrant review training and civilian investigators just deliberately earmarked in some of the um, increase in the LMPD budget. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that's those are good things to have. I I, I think uh, that that to me seems like um, if you're going to have a police department, those seem like things that you need to have for sure. Um, in addition to the increase from LMPD, there were also increases in funding for homeless services, including a fifteen million dollar uh, you know line item for the Louisville Housing Trust Fund, reallocating money from the Office of Housing and Community Development towards the Office of Resilience and Community Services. So actually, the Office of Housing and Community Development saw their budget come down quite a bit. But the Office of Resilience and Community Service had their budget doubled from 16 to $32 million. And overall, the funding for those two offices went up uh, significantly. So there's a lot of money being put towards housing and homelessness services. There was a whole plan that Mayor Greenberg put forth that we've actually talked about on the show, if you go back a few weeks and, and read through that. Um, but but this is like money in the budget that's going towards um, paying for some of these homelessness services, which is an increasing problem across the country. And it's nice to see the city taking some steps. Uh, we will certainly have to evaluate those and see how they work. Um, any Any thoughts about the homelessness services that are in the budget here? Um, I do think um, it looks like we're putting some more money into pulling people out of the river, bef- you know, or be- 
finding people, why they fall in the river, whatever that little. I follow. Uh, yeah, I got you. Yeah. But it looks like we're, instead of just being like, well, there's homeless people. That's a problem. Let's go fix that. They're saying, how do people become houseless? How do they become unhomed? And how can we fix that? I think mm-hmm. that's an important piece of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I mean, housing is a big piece of that. Um, there's a lot of problems with housing across the whole city, across the whole state, in areas everywhere. Just be, and and the, the the root causes of those, I don't think, are super clear yet. I think that there's just like a real crisis in housing that's going on that has a lot of causes, and we're basically trying to do everything that we can to fix it. Um, these are steps that are important. Like I said, I think we're doing the best to identify how to solve this problem, and some of this stuff probably isn't going to work. I mean, I'll just be honest. Like, it's probably not going to solve the problem uh, in a year. I don't think we're going to be, be like, oh, my gosh, there's no homeless people now. I think there will still be big problems with, you know, houselessness, unhomed people. Um, but I do think, you know, we have to do something, and these are good first steps that we will need to evaluate, change, and reallocate and reinvest, do all that sort of stuff as we move forward as a community. So, And this is one of those investments where we probably won't see like you're saying, we probably won't see any improvement immediately. It's going to be a multi-year process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's going to, it's going to require investment from every level of government. And I do think, you know, we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of investment at the local level. We're also seeing a lot of investment at the federal level. And I do think the state government is doing their best to ignore anything that could possibly help Louisville or Lexington. So I don't think we're going to see a lot of help from that level, um, unfortunately, but we need it. Uh, so I certainly hope we start seeing it in the next legislative session. And it's not stuff like, oh, you got to take this money to like cut the heads off of homeless people or something. So we're wrapping up the discussion on homelessness. Yes, we've doubled, we've invested a lot. We hope that that solves a lot of problems, but you know, it's going to take a while and it's going to take investment uh, across the um, spectrum in order to solve a lot of these problems. Uh, Oh, and you said something about Louisville and Lexington. Yeah, yeah. So the last thing to say about the the budget itself is that there were some cuts to the mayor's budget. Um, the the way that uh, the the budgets work in cities still operate the way they had, used to on every level of government, where the mayor releases a budget and the the legislative branch just basically like reworks it. Uh, in the federal and state governments now, the uh, governor and or president releases a budget and then the legislative branch completely ignores it. Uh, but the city budget basically still uses the executive as a starting point, and the the legislature did make several cuts. Um, the first thing is that they cut $5 million, which was suppo- supposed to be used to fund a basketball arena for Simmons College. Um, that was very dramatic and made the news in uh, lots of different ways. Uh, it, I, you know, Go to a different source if you want to get all of the details about that. I don't know enough about it to be able to talk eloquently about it. But basically, there were people that were upset that that money wasn't being used to fund parks because it was a pass-through with the parks department. Um, the Simmons College... Um, arena slash like facility that was supposed to be funded had like a a fee that you had to pay to join um the mayor is close with kevin cosby who is the pre- the pastor the leader there at saint stephen um so there which and he also is the president of simmons college so anyways um there's a lot there so that was cut that was removed from the budget after simmons said they didn't want it anymore given the extra stipulations being put on the money um, there was also $6 million in cuts for downtown grocery stores. I don't exactly know the, the story there. It, that seems unfortunate. We do need more downtown grocery stores. There are a lot of food deserts in Louisville. Um, I do know that, that that's a problem that we've put a lot of money towards without a lot of solutions in the past few years. So maybe we take this year to kind of figure out how, what we're doing and, and do it better next year. And there was also $5 million cut to the 
quote, downtown revitalization fund, unquote. Um, that also seems bad. I don't know. I, I would have liked to have seen more money spent towards this. Um, there was a, a, a thing I read today that said like only about half of the activity that, that Louisville saw prior to the pandemic starting had retur- returned to the downtown area. And, you know, if we want to have a vibrant growing city, that's something that we certainly need to see more of. And, um, you know, Spending money on it is how you achieve that goal. So there is a lot of money that's being spent on lighting, stuff uh, that will impact the downtown. But um, those were the cuts made by the, the city council, the uh, the metro council, I, I suppose is what we call it. So um, the, one, the one thing I did want to say about Lexington, to your point, though, is that just like in Lexington, the Louisville Metro Council is very diverse ideologically. And also, unlike Lexington, Louisville is actually elected on a partisan basis. So we have like a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans with D or R by their name. So whereas in Lexington, you can say like, oh, there's a lot of like kind of good feelings and people don't have to run against each other on a partisan basis. And in Louisville, they do. You do have to run against each other on a partisan basis. Um, you do score points by opposing the Democratic mayor if you're a Republican, um, et cetera. And the thing is, like, in both Louisville and Lexington, these budgets have passed unanimously. Um, there, there has been, you know, uh, no opposition to the final document, which just goes to show that the urban areas of Kentucky have not forgotten that the best way to legislate is through building consensus and then working together across dividing lines, which state government does, does not do yeah, at all. Kind of refreshing. Yeah. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, mostly, you know, play in Frankfurt as far as lobbying goes to see, I mean, the frequency that I see something passed unanimously in Frank is very, very low. And it'll be something, it'll be like some resolution that's like, we all agree that it's not okay to be mean to each other. Right. And they all pass that. And then they're, you know, aggressively mean to each other. But, you know, seeing something that's like unanimously passed bipartisan, I just don't see it that often in but it's nice to see it happens in Lexington and Louisville. Yeah, yeah, especially not a budget, you know, especially not something as big and, and far-reaching as a budget. Yeah, there are a lot of things I think I do end up seeing passing, like, without much opposition, but usually it is, like, yeah, just little little things or, like, changes to, like, the name of a post office or something like that. Or, or, or and, and, you know, it isn't to say that there aren't, like, small-level things that are done that way. I mean, even from very partisan members of the legislature – um, unless you're a Democrat, like maybe very partisan Republicans um, working through the process. And, and, you know, if they do the right work to get the Democrats to like talk to them, help them understand the issue, a lot of times, you know, the Democrats have no trouble going along uh, to vote on something if their input is asked for. It's just that they don't necessarily need it. In Louisville and Lexington, uh, in Louisville especially, they don't need the, the Republicans either, um, but they still get them. You know, they still work to make sure that their priorities are addressed in the budget. So there you go. That's- a nod to how inclusion, inclusive they're being to the democratic process in the city of Louisville. And I really think our legislature in Frankfurt could, you know, take some notes from it, maybe work together a little bit better. Um, it's obvious. Uh-huh. You can see our Metro Council members. And granted, I don't know that many of them. Like, I'm good at catching who they are and recognizing that they're a politician. But I can't pinpoint where they are in the city the way I can with the <laughs> um but it's it feels like they do genuinely work together and they do genuinely get along with each other. Even people that are complete polar opposites, they might, t- you know, some of the Republicans do take some shots at Mayor Greenberg and they were taking shots at him while he was running for office and things like that. But at the end of the day, they decided to unanimously pass a budget. Yep. Uh, yeah, there's 
Yeah, you know, I, I say I will. I will say it is a fact, uh, or something I agree with that the Metro Council gets along better than the state legislature. I will stop there and not contradict anything else you've said. Uh, there you go. Um, we, that is all that I had written down for notes. But there was a story that came out today uh, in Kentucky Today, which is a publication by. Um, the Kentucky Baptist Convention. I guess it came out yesterday, and I didn't write much down about it. But but you you had flagged it for me. Said you might want to talk a little bit about it. Uh, um, I don't know. We we don't have any notes, so we're doing this live. We're doing it on the fly. Okay. Um, but I'll do my best to kind of explain it the way that I know it. So so um, the veteran reporter at Kentucky Today is Lawrence Smith. Yeah, who had worked at WDRB for years and years. Was a very good journalist. I, I, at WDRB, he was a very good journalist. Uh, I, I don't have any hesitation in saying that. He did some of the best reporting during um, the most newsworthy time during the, the 2020 protests uh, around the death of Breonna Taylor. Uh, Lawrence Smith was one of the best reporters on the scene there, doing interviews with people marching to provide a lot of context. Um, if you remember the time, the, uh, the the marches kind of bifurcated, and there was a much more violent march that happened on 4th Street Live, and then there was a different march that took off down Bardstown Road um, that was led more by locals and people who were out, like, doing a more, you know, traditional protesting, and, and he helped to really draw that out really well. I, that was something I was really impressed by when he did it. He left that job and went to go work for Kentucky Today, which is a publication that is wholly owned by the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Um, which is because they get a seat at press conferences just like every other newspaper, like the Courier, like the Herald. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, I grew up uh, a Kentucky Baptist, and I they this this publication was like born out of a a, a desire to have uh, you know a little bit more impact and influence on the news media, um, and took the place of this like longstanding um, newsletter that they used to publish that was extremely wholesome and mostly had like death announcements and you know talks about old ladies organizing yard sales to support like missionaries the- and whatever <laughs> bulletin we had bulletins yeah yeah no this was like a, this is yeah it was it, you, i got it in the news it was in the mail it was a long story the western recorder is a cool pr- publication it's gone now in favor of this is basically fox news for uh for kentucky so Right. Kentucky Today is the publication. They released this story, I guess, yesterday that had to do uh, with a lot of open records requests done um, on JCPS teachers that Lawrence Smith accused of organizing the protest um, against SB 150, uh, which was the anti-trans legislation that was going through the legislature um, this year during the legislative session. Um, That's not the case. It was a student led movement. Um, and there, I think a lot of these emails that exist, um, they didn't even, even really seem like they were teachers taking the lead and they were actually even saying like, here's the student that's in charge. And then like, as you can see, these teachers were taking the lead when that actual text of the email is like, this is the student who's in charge. So you have a lot more information about this, Emily. What, what do you have to say about it? So in transparency, I was at that rally. Yeah entirely child-led and when i say child i mean somebody under the age of 18 Hmm. um 
So I'll say that. So I was there. I was not there on a sick day before somebody wants to open records request that because you do have to sign a notarized statement saying that you were incapable of physically going to work when you use a sick day as a teacher. Um, so I would, did not use a sick day. Um, but I was down in Frankfurt. It was it was student led. And I do personally know one of the teachers that was targeted by Lawrence's uh, attempted journalism is what I'm going to call it because it's not really journalism. Um, and she was very adamant that she was like, I'm going down down with kids because they said they were going with or without me um and i felt that i needed to keep them safe because like let's be honest the opposition side to uh trans individuals queer individuals members of the lgbtqia plus are nazis there are nazis on that side are all of them nazis i don't know but there are nazis on that side i very much felt like children were going to be in danger that's why i went i felt it was important and you can there were other adults there as well. We formed a perimeter around the students. There were, I was towards the front. There were several of them mixed around on the sides and things like that. Our entire job was to keep kids safe and to push them to the middle if a, if a threat came up. And that was the directions that we gave to the kids before it started. Um, we had other members. It wasn't just teachers. Um, there were a lot of youth leaders from around the state that came and they were like, we have a first aid kit. There's water. We've brought snacks. Like, that's what the adults did. The adults said, we're forming a perimeter. We'll push you into the middle if something goes wrong. We've brought you water. We've brought you snacks. Please come find an adult. We all obviously look like adults if something goes wrong and you need help. So, but it was entirely student-led. Um, the teacher that was mentioned in the article, I don't want to name drop her whole name because she's pretty actively being doxxed right now, as is the other that was um in the article um and um they were very i know my friend was very adamant that she was like i'm not leading this um this and even in the article it's her email that's basically like this is bigger than i intended i don't have time to plan all of this because i'm a teacher um here are some kids that are involved um who is going to basically go and help keep kids safe um but we have always engaged in civic activities with our students um i have been i was an english teacher before i started teaching the freshman seminar class i have had students write to legislators i never pick their position i never pick their topic I usually give them like a set list of topics if they can't like figure something out. Most of them want to talk about legalizing marijuana because they're teenagers. <laughs> but, um, well, you know, I, to me, a lot of this like quote unquote controversy just goes to show like how little that people on that side of the argument understand the role of teachers in our lives. Like what are in children's lives, right? When you say children, people under the age of 18, because to be student led um, when you're when you're an organization or a movement or whatever led by people un- like who are still developing children, like they aren't going to have the same expertise as it's something that's going to be led no. by something uh, by people in their 30s or 40s. And they do need adult supervision. Um, and, and it is the role of teachers and the role of people in these places to like, you know, to, to allow children, allow these students to lead these movements to be in charge of these movements, not direct them in their ideologies or, or whatever, but to provide help assistance, uh, guidance as they need it because they're kids, because they're children. Uh, they need that. And, and, and it sprang up completely organically. And honestly, if I had a a batch of students that were like, you go to, because my students know that I go to Frankfurt, they're aware of it. They don't know why. (laughs) 
what I do. They know I go to Frankfurt. If they came and were like, there's a right to life rally and we all want to go, I'd be like, great, happy to take you. Because I don't care about my own personal politics when I interact with children. And even I've had, there have been school age kids, they're usually uh, from a different county, being in Frankfurt and they are fully decked out in stuff that I don't personally agree with politically. And they'll be sitting down in the lobbies and they'll ask, you know, they'll be like, oh, I don't know who to go to. And I'm like, I sit down with them and I go, who's the legislator? Let's go look it up together. This is how you go fill out a card to make sure you can, like, I'm not policing their politics. I'm telling them how to safely get in and out of places. But this, that rally was completely organic from the students. And I think there's an implication that students aren't following this when they are. Mm -hmm. And one of the conversations that I have with a lot of people is that my students are not cognizant of the, of SB 150 and any of those bills as politics. They don't call it politics, air quotes, politics. They can view it as a human's rights issue. Mm -hmm. They view all of that as a human rights issue. They are fully convinced that, that like they don't view it as a, per, a political ideology. They are just like, no, these are my friends and people don't want my friends to have access to the things that they need, gender affirming care. And like, to be clear, 0% of gender affirming surgeries were done on children. 0% in the oh, state yeah. of Kentucky. Anybody like, who's listened listen to this show knows that for sure. Uh, oh yeah, as it wasn't happening. And, versus, and also as somebody that was physically present at the rally, there were a lot of times where um, keep grown adults would stand far from us and take lots of pictures. And these are minors. These are children. And I know that they got called like, I, I believe there was somebody calling them like the blue hair mob or whatever it was. They're children. Mm -hmm. They are children. The entire mass was children. There were adults on the on the outside and there were some parents mixed in with their own children who they have a full right to parent however they see fit but um calling children names um pretending student uh, children aren't smart enough to follow news they are there's an entire like ecosystem of news distribution that happens on tiktok that most adults don't recognize and the only reason i recognize it is because my students talk to me about it and that's what, you know, there's this either they're, they're too, I don't know if they think they're stupid or if they think they're dumb or if they think they're uninformed, but they're none of those things. They're very, very, in, they're very involved. They're very informed and they made these decisions on their own. We just weren't going to let them be in danger yeah. because I, I'm sorry if some, there's, there has been times where I've been physically present in the Capitol where people are open carrying long guns i didn't need it yeah. shot that yeah and i'm not i don't think that's i think that's part of why there were so many exchanges and you can i think one of the things that drives me the most up the wall about lawrence's reporting is that he made sure to point out who all had pronouns in that their, that was a part that i was like very offended by yeah absolutely i have had a pronoun have had pronouns in my signatures for years because my name is spelled e-m-i-l-i-e and a lot of people think it's emil or emilio and call me mister and i'm not i'm like dang it i'm a girl and put it in my pro, and put it in my because i saw other people do it and i was like oh well this way people won't call me mister and no apparently that's something that can get like there are so many people that have pronouns in their signatures that have nothing to do. <laughs> They're like, I just want you to call me by the right thing. Yeah. And, and even if not, even if you're doing it in solidarity with the trans community, like that's 
should be. I mean, no matter where you come down on like whether or not trans people deserve, you know, appropriate medical care. Like, I don't know. Maybe it just goes to show you that, you know, these people don't even think that trans people deserve to exist. Um, and, and that's like a real scary situation to find ourselves in. You know, I was, I thought, I felt like for, you know, the past like several years, it was getting to be a little bit more like socially acceptable and even, even, you know, expected that we'd be able to talk about what our pronouns are. And we were like moving forward on this. And now to see it like weaponized in a different way, um, is quite scary. Uh, there were a lot of pieces of this reporting that were like deeply, deeply disappointing um, for me as somebody who ha- really appreciated Lawrence Smith in the past. But that part really upset me. That was a part that I thought was like offensive uh, and really something that I thought was very inappropriate. So, well, it kind of speaks to this whole thing of like these the people that are opponents there, you know, don't want queer people to exist, whatever. Their implication is, I think that they think people can resist these urges air quotes resist them and no they can't so either you are resisting an urge person that hates queer people that what doesn't want to use their doesn't want to put pronoun no you know my pronouns are usa and kiss my ass whatever so either you're resisting something and you're actually just a member of the community and you don't want to talk about it or you think they shouldn't exist those are the only two options and honestly, I'm just going to also say as an English teacher, the demonization of pronouns has been exhausting. <laughs> um, I taught grammar intervention for kids that were going to take the ACT for years. And it went from pronoun antecedent agreement. Oh, yay. Let's see how this works. To I don't use pronouns. I'm like, well, you just used one. So, <laughs> so and, and it's it kind of like dives into this educational neglect that people are trying to force on all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I have students that have, you know, I did an ACT reading and it was about dinosaurs. And he told me, I can't read this. I said, why? I said, I don't believe in dinosaurs. It's against my religion. That's educational neglect. Dinosaurs are real. (laughs) Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you tell your child that pronouns are like, I don't even know as a, a symptom of a sick society or something. No, they're a, they're a word that takes the place of a noun. So all like the, the speed with which some people want to inflict their edu- educational neglect on everybody else's children is wild. Yeah. But that's part of it is these little microaggressions of, Oh, well, by the way, her pronouns were in her bio. And I, I know you and I probably get this on Twitter all the time. People will be like, oh, pronouns in bio. Yeah. Uh, yeah, immediately, you know, not paying attention to you, and I'm like, yeah, told me, sir, earlier. That's why there's pronouns in my body. It certainly is like the end of me taking Lawrence Smith seriously as a journalist, and just seeing him as part of, uh, you know, movement commentary that we've seen kind of kind of take the place of journalism over the past, you know, however many years. Oof. Well, Emily, thank you so much for giving us that information to giving us kind of the inside uh, idea or, or like information about what we needed about how that really actually worked. Um, and, and thank you for bearing with me on the uh, the Louisville budget and talking to me about uh, the these campaign finance dramas. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us today, Emily. I really appreciate you being here. I'm absolutely happy to join. All right. Thank you, everybody. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Facebook or Twitter at MyOldKYPod. We have an email newsletter that we release sporadically at uh, tinyletter.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And we are part of, oh, yeah, support us on Patreon as little as a dollar a month. Um, please do that. Patreon.com slash MyOldKentuckyPodcast. And, uh, yeah, uh, we are part of the Dimcast and Forward Kentucky Networks. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you guys next week. 